0: Professor Geraint Rees is the Dean of the Faculty of Life Sciences at UCL. He heads AI there and is also the director of UCL Business, UCL's technology transfer arm. His research is primarily in cognitive neuroscience and has been cited over 35,000 times and he has a H index of 93. He sits at the intersection of academia, technology and business, so he has a really rich bird's eye perspective on medtech and so it was a real privilege talking to him. I asked him what areas of AI and medicine don't get enough attention the role of private companies in research, and whether you need to work disproportionately hard to reach the upper echelons of the field. I hope you enjoy. Could you start by telling me a little bit about your story, say from medical school to how you got to where you are today?
1: Gosh, that's a lot of a story. Um, Well, uh, at medical school, I was captivated by the brain and I did uh, what would now be called an intercalated BSc, Um, uh, in what would now be called neuroscience. And I was convinced that that's what I wanted to do. Um, But I didn't like neurology at all. So that was a bit of a problem. So I spent a lot of my time in early clinical training doing intensive care medicine um, and became slightly convinced that I wanted to be a renal physician. I'm not sure why. Fortunately, the renal physicians um, had identified that I was completely unsuitable for such a career. Um, And uh, didn't appoint me to any of those jobs. And so I had to um, go and become a neurology SHA where I discovered that actually I'd been uh, laboring under the misapprehension uh, that neurology was uh, boring. In fact, it was fascinating. And then my neurology and neuroscience um, interests married up. Um, And that was really for me the start of a career in clinical academic practice using brain imaging um, to image um, and try and understand consciousness, the um, uh, set of uh, subjective feelings we have about the world around us. Which I think is fascinating because it's one of the most important things that gives our life meaning. Um, not many of us would want to live out the rest of our life unconscious either in the sense of being asleep or in the sense of being a zombie without inner thoughts and feelings so it really is critical um, to human existence Um, so I undertook a PhD did some postdoctoral training um, and to cut a long story short became a professor um, looking at those areas and that then started a second phase in my career where um, I uh, discovered the joys of um, leadership and I was lucky enough to uh, direct an Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience at UCL and now I'm uh, Dean of Life Sciences and Pro Vice Provost for Artificial Intelligence at UCL.
0: Your research into cognitive neuroscience is really fascinating. What's, what's one question you hope to get to the bottom of by the end of your career?
1: What's the neural basis of consciousness? I would hope to get to the bottom of that.
0: Can you explain that to a five-year-old slash a medical student?
1: Yeah, so we use we use the term consciousness in uh, at least two different ways. Um, one is it we we use it to refer to uh, the fact we can sometimes be awake and having experiences, and sometimes be asleep or unconscious having experiences. And that's, if you like, one set of brain mechanisms. What wakes us up in the morning, uh, what puts us to bed at night, um, what, uh, if we're hit or we're in an accident, can knock us out. Um, I'm less interested in those. What I'm really interested in are when we are awake, and of course sometimes when we're asleep, when we're dreaming, we have this vivid set of experiences um, of the world outside and of our inner self Uh, which we call consciousness. We can say we're conscious of uh, an apple or a scent or a flavor or a smell as well as more complicated things like I'm uh, aware I feel a little self-conscious or I'm aware I feel a sense of deja vu. So we humans have this complicated set of inner experiences that we can share through other people through language and non-verbal communication Um, and we're not quite sure whether other mammals, other animals have those experiences or not Some of us might think our dog or our cat are conscious in the same way as we are. Um, Others would not. Some people would think an earthworm is conscious. Others would not. And the reason we have that ambiguity is because we don't really understand the neural mechanisms of consciousness. And so we don't really have any scientific basis um, to uh, appreciate what animals might be conscious um, and what might not. And of course, um, neurological illness, but also some psychiatric illnesses, some other types of illness can affect our consciousness in all sorts of ways. Um, so I'm interested in understanding that, which seems to be um, something that's special about being human, um, and something that gives richness um, to all of our lives.
0: So you mentioned that you're the pro-vice provost of artificial intelligence at UCL, and it sounds like a position that didn't exist 20-30 years ago. How did that come about and what is it?
1: So It came about because the university had a realisation that um, algorithms in the broadest sense, uh, artificial intelligence is obviously quite a big term, but encompasses a lot of what what you might call analytics, algorithms, um, ways of interrogating and learning from data to generate behaviour or decisions that seem intelligent. that the realization that that sort of activity was taking place all across the university. So not just in traditional places where you might expect AI research like a computer science department, um, but also In some areas of our Institute for Education, there were people interested in AI in our um, faculty of laws, interested in regulation, uh, lots in medicine, some of whom I'm sure you you have talked to or will talk to, like uh, my friend Pierce Keane. So all across the university, there was this um, ferment of activity. um, But we didn't have underpinning that any sense of a narrative or a strategy that as a university, how we wanted to promote and bring those things together. So the whole was more than the sum of its part. We also didn't have any strategy for underpinning that what sort of computational um, equipment, what sort Um, of software stacks do we need to provide for these researchers and these teachers Um, and we didn't have any systematic way of engaging with the companies um, and social enterprises out there in the world who are also using artificial intelligence to work on um, real world problems. So the post was created to think about those things, to coordinate um, those things, and to try and make us, as a modern global research university, um, better at at having an integrated whole that was more than the sum of its individually impressive
0: parts. So from a medic's perspective, or at least from my perspective, there's areas of AI, um, particularly in medicine, that are very sexy, like uh, image analysis. But you get this high-level picture of AI, not only within medicine, but across other specialties as well. What part do you think is interesting that doesn't get enough attention or people aren't really looking at at the moment?
1: Well, one area that's interesting to think of is whether AI has any role to play in therapies. So we we often think of AI in... Um, surveilling populations, predicting things um, that might happen in preventative medicine, uh, predicting what you might have to do to avoid a particular de- disease state. Or the examples you mentioned in diagnostics, that is, for example, could we use AI to um, read mam- mammograms or deliver some insights from analysis of other medical images? And those are all in the the, the diagnostics and, and before space. And it's harder to think of how AI might contribute in the therapeutic space because, of course, therapeutics are often, not always, um, medicines we take that alter uh, our bodily physiology. So what, one interesting neglected area, uh, I think, that a few companies are working on that's quite interesting is the use of uh, natural language algorithms and understanding natural algorithm um, to derive talking therapies in mental health. Um, So cognitive behavior therapy and delivering those through different channels, as it were, and ultimately, perhaps um, algorithmically or through an artificial intelligence. That's a kind of interesting area that people don't always think of when they think of applications of AI. Um, And we might also think of how AI can work alongside additional existing therapeutics, whether they're medications we take or whether they're surgical therapies, for example, um, how AI could work alongside those to synergize or enhance the effects of those therapies. So that, I think that's that's just a handful of things that um, catch my interest, as well as the more popular areas, if you like, of um, image analytics. Final area to, to think about is Healthcare these days, in certainly in Western settings, is delivered in very complex, large systems of primary and secondary care, all integrated into what we might call um, a health science network. These large structures are incredibly complicated to operate and have huge operational inefficiencies. And we see the kind of stresses that hospital systems can be put under their operations in things like the current global COVID-19 pandemic what we perhaps haven't paid enough attention to is whether ai and and analytic systems have potential to really optimize those kind of aspects that are not so medical but are to do with how a hospital or a healthcare system operates the the flows of patients the throughput of an outpatient clinic the timing of outpatient appointments things that collectively uh, make the patient journey or the patient pathway much easier but aren't directly diagnosis or therapies so that's a sort of second set of areas in which I think AI has the potential to have a major impact, but perhaps we haven't harnessed fully those opportunities.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think I've seen your Nature paper on this kind of topic. Of I think it was on triaging, right? Um, in hospital systems.
1: Well, there's one paper, um, a colleague of mine, Amy Nelson, authored that I think you, you, you might be talking about, which was about trying to predict non-attendance at, at hospital appointments. Um, so there, the issue is, is straightforward. Um, many people fail to attend for their hospital appointments, and that creates, particularly if you've got very expensive machinery like an MRI scanner, um, essentially wasted resource that could have uh, reduced a waiting list or allowed a patient to access something earlier. So the very simple question, uh, she asked was um, can you actually predict who is not going to attend their appointment because that also allows you to target what you might do rather than just ring everyone up or send everyone a text message saying remember you've got an appointment you could actually target your intervention you could ring up the people who are actually predicted to miss their appointment and say well why are you going to miss your appointment do you need some transport do you need some help do you need something else to do something so precision medicine if you like um, but <laughs> but directed at appointments and what, and what she found was um, surprisingly the routine hospital data that's just held in every hospital about people's appointment uh, can do a pretty good job at narrowing down who's at most risk um, of not turning up. So you can then target an intervention. That's a really, really practical thing, but it would save countless billions of NHS money if we could roll that kind of a solution out um, across the entire um, health service. I think one, one final point to make there is that Figuring out that that's a problem um, is something that healthcare professionals can do because we're in hospitals every day and we see that people don't turn up for appointments. And you might not see that always from outside if you're not a healthcare professional working in a hospital. And so there's a real role for all of us working in healthcare settings to use that knowledge to identify those little areas like that that perhaps seem a little trivial, but actually cumulatively are a huge wasted resource. We can identify them capture them um, and and then use AI and advanced uh, analytics, we hope to solve them, to make the health service better.
0: I'm going to ask you this because of your role as uh, director of the UCL's technology transfer arm, and feel free to pa- fact check me here. But I think hundreds of years ago, a scientist might have a rich benefactor who would fund their research. And then seemingly at some point, we moved away from that model where it was more governments and nonprofit grants, which sponsored a lot of science. And now it feels like we might be going more towards the former with the emergence of companies like DeepMind and Google Health who are sponsoring cutting-edge research, particularly into machine learning and medicine. Now, do you feel as if there's being, do you think there's a, a shift happening in how science is funded at the moment?
1: No, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that characterization. I think, um, first of all, your your idea that the rich benefactor has gone away, that, that's not true. Uh, there are amazing philanthropists out there um, who do, can and do um, invest considerable time and effort into supporting uh, biomedical research. Um, we, we know some of them because they are billionaires like, like Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, one of the world's largest charities. Um, but there's also countless other philanthropists out there uh, making smaller but really important gifts. Um, similarly, it's not really the case that companies have just come along in the last five minutes um, and suddenly are supporting research. Again, there's a rich history of um, companies either doing research themselves because, of course, a lot of R&D in this country takes place actually in, for example, pharmaceutical companies, uh, in technology companies and so on, but also supporting that interaction with universities. So I would see it more like um, an ecosystem where there are different types of funding available and different types of funder available and different situations in which research can take place and that that is shifting where you are right is that does shift over time just like any ecosystem think of a coral reef or something although maybe the analogy is wrong because there's there's no equivalent of bleaching here and climate change Um, that ecosystem is continually changing what i think we have to be attentive to is just thinking about what balance would look like for that ecosystem. I think it would be wrong to have a research system that was solely dependent on government funding, but equally it would be wrong to have a research system that was solely dependent on philanthropic individuals or just on companies. So I think the the more sophisticated question to ask is what's the right balance?
0: For someone who's not familiar with this whole ecosystem, what role, exactly, do private companies have in either research or the translation of research?
1: So, so it, it clearly varies between the type of company. So, a company, for example, that's involved in retail or hospitality um, is, is perhaps less likely to be engaged in as much research as a company involved in delivering uh, new medicines or creating new technologies for public benefit. Um, so it, it does differ across sectors. That's called the R&D intensity. And you, you can measure it, and governments measure it, the percentage of their, their turnover. Um, I, I think the sort of long answer is that companies that do invest in research and development um, do some of it in-house. Um, They have particular teams in-house to develop their own um, ideas. So in the medical space, that might be about surgical robots, or it might be about new forms of um, agents to treat diabetes, or it might be about something completely different. But they also work um with partners like universities um, and hospitals um sometimes because there is particular expertise that they don't have in-house and they want to access through that partnership sometimes because there's a need to work alongside patients to have the patient voice represented Uh, sometimes for other reasons so you know the longish answer would be um i think it would be a mistake to see companies as somehow an optional part of this ecosystem, that everything could take place in this, this beautiful world without companies. Um, and we should remember that um, creating companies that make things is, is, is actually ultimately how we translate most benefits into the world. That is, if we want to create a new medicine in a university or in a hospital, we can do so. Uh, but if you want to scale up the manufacture, so we can manufacture millions of doses and transport it all over the world, Well, we're going to need a company because we need to understand bioprocess engineering, we need to understand scale-up of drug manufacture, we need to understand logistics and regulation and all sorts of things where the expertise wouldn't necessarily be in a hospital or in a university. So it's not as simple for me as um, sometimes people see in the health sector that companies are somehow intrinsically less good, and healthcare systems are somehow intrinsically more good. I think both are required to deliver healthcare advances.
0: Throughout your career, have there been any habits or ways of approaching things that have helped you along the way?
1: Got to enjoy yourself. Um, it's sometimes harder said easier said than done. Um, sometimes it's very hard to enjoy yourself when you've got a grant deadline or you just fail to get a job or, or whatever. But I think pulling back the broader picture, if you're not smiling, um or at least you don't have the potential to smile when you get up and go to work uh, if you're not enjoying what you do um then i think you need to take a long hard look at it and ask yourself is this a temporary thing that's just uh, because i'm having a bad day or because i've um, not got a grant or i have not got a job um or is this something more permanent and so that's the second thing for me that that i've always been afraid that I would lose self-awareness, that I would lose the ability to look inside myself and say, am I really happy? Um, I think doctors in particular, or people with medical training, are really good sometimes um, at, at um, not always being at convincing themselves that whatever they're doing at the moment is the right thing. And I think what I've always sought to cultivate is a little bit of skepticism. It just probes me and says, are you really sure? Are you really sure? And, and then I go, yeah, I'm really sure. And then then in a voice, and then you're back to enjoying myself. So I think enjoy yourself, um, cultivate self-awareness, and a third thing would would be. Um, work-life balance remembering that balance is a verb not a noun it's not something you achieve when you're sort of you know 22 and then say ah got work-life balance fine got it sorted because of course everyone's life is always changing um, and everyone's circumstances are always different and even when you think you've achieved stability something out there will come along like COVID-19 or or whatever uh, good as well as bad things to disrupt that balance so adopting a sort of um continuous checking, have I got the balance right? Um, do I need to change anything? Do I need to tweak anything in my life? Um, is this balance right has also always been important to me. So I think those, those are three things, perhaps not all the things, but certainly three things um, that I think are really important to think about.
0: Do you think or do you see medics in clinical academia, do you see them working too hard?
1: That's a, it's a funny thing to say too hard, isn't it? Because it kind of depends on the person right? Some people like to work like crazy, uh, and that's really important to them. And uh, often they're really, really good at what they do. Um, And they're surrounded by people in their personal life who are content with those people working like crazy. And I think that's fine. Um, Equally, I see people who are perhaps not working like crazy. Um, Now, not, not working like crazy in the sense of being lazy, I don't think that's fine. But what I mean is people for whom going to work is not necessarily the be all and end all of their entire life maybe they have something they're really passionate about in their in their personal life maybe they have family members that are more important than work to them that's fine too i think the the important thing is that every, <laughs> you you're aware of where that balance lies for you and i think what is unfortunate is when people either feel pressured to work too hard for reasons that are um not not legitimate, if you like. Sometimes we all have to work hard um, at what we're doing. Um, but if we're working really, really hard when we don't need to work hard, that's that's a mismatch. Um, and Ditto, you can have a mismatch the other way, of course. You can be uh, a little bit um, uh, either a bit lazy or not working hard enough. So you know you, you want to achieve some goal um, but you're really not putting and you can see people like that who are really not putting the effort in Commensurate with achieving the particular goal they've set their heart on. So I think that the thing is not about whether people are working too hard or not hard enough. The important thing is the mismatch. Is there a mismatch between how hard they're working and how hard they need to work to achieve the goals they want to um, they want to achieve?
0: I'm very interested in your opinion on this. And sometimes it feels like if you want to reach the upper echelons of your own field, then on the bell and you you know on the bell curve, you want to be On one extreme, you do need to be. You need to match that kind of work ethic, and you do need to be on the extreme end of work as well. It's interesting to ask you from your position. For many people, you might be that person who they would like to be one day. Do you think that's true?
1: (laughs) That many people want to be like me? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, all right. Let's say a few things about that. the The first thing I'd always say is um, medics are often the first set of people to forget the difference between a prospective and a retrospective trial. So they often think, oh, Geraint, or or pick your favorite older person or more senior person. What pearls of wisdom have you got to tell me about how to get to where you are today? And of course, what you're seeing um, or or the person you're talking to is someone who's made a whole load of choices during my life, but you're assessing them retrospectively um, at, at a point where I'm in the position I'm in. What we don't know is if a thousand Geraint started off um, age 20 and did exactly the same choices as me, maybe 999 of them would be content and successful and happy and able to talk to you on a podcast. But equally, it could be that 999 of them are really miserable and unhappy and their choices have led them to rack and ruin. And you're just happening to talk to the one person um, who made those choices who's really happy. So I think you've always got to take that kind of um, that advice from your seniors with that pinch of salt, that it's not a prospective trial. So we don't actually know if the choices I made are the right ones for you or me or or anyone else, really. Now, that said, um, let's. Get back to your overall question, which has eluded me. So, just put me back on track. What what, what do you want me to talk
0: about? So, I'm saying that on the normal distribution, on that curve, if you want to be an outlier on there, your work effort needs to be matched that as well.
1: Yeah. So, I think I think two things I'd say for that. Yeah, maybe three. Okay, three things. So, so the first is, yeah, I, I agree with the basic premise that it's really hard to see people in any area of life who are successful who don't work reasonably hard to get that success of course there's always a few incredibly lucky people you know lottery winners just write down some some numbers and suddenly they've got they've got millions and millions of pounds although that doesn't necessarily bring them happiness of course but you know that yes there is an element of luck but most people work hard um, uh, if they're going to be good at something again i think though um it, the second thing is it's about working smart as well as working hard um, so just hard work on its own just putting in the hours um, y- you can either cut down on those hours by working smarter um, and have more time for other things in your life or you know you could work smarter and put the same amount of hours in and and, and and be even more successful. But it is certainly not true that there's some linear relationship. If you work double the amount of hours, you get double the success. That's clearly not true either. So I think just a little bit of thought about that, it's about um, commitment and and passion and working hard, but not necessarily going completely crazy. Um, Final thought is most people work harder and longer at things they um, enjoy. So it goes back to my finding what you love rather than what you think you're going to be successful at or, or what you think is the most important or the sexiest or the um, uh, most urgent area. Finding what you love is probably more important to me because then not only are you going to work harder, but you're going to actually enjoy the hours you are spending working. You know, your, your work is a a reward in itself rather than a means to earn, an end such as um, earn, earning earning a lot of money or uh, being seen by your peers as highly successful. Yeah, I think uh, perhaps final, final thought. I know I keep saying final thought. Um, as you get older, you do reflect on your own mortality. Certainly having children uh, did that for me. And, and someone once went, said to me, which I think is very true, uh, nobody ever laid on their deathbed and said, do you know what? My one regret in life uh, is that I should have spent much more time at work. You know, My one regret in life is, oh, I spent too much time with my family and friends. No one ever says that. So in the kind of final analysis, I think you've got to balance up your commitment to working hard with the other aspects, which will be different for all of us, that make your life rich and enjoyable, and make sure you've got plenty of time for all of those things easier said than done I know and it's a balance and a constant balance but I think it's a really important habit to get into if you can um, and to keep tinkering with that habit to to see what's right for you.
0: Have there been any books or resources that have that you think are worth looking into? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well you should come down da- you should come downstairs from where I'm doing this podcast. My house is full of books. Books are just the most amazing things, right? They're the invention of writing and the ability to put knowledge outside one's brain uh, and pass it on to people who aren't in your immediate uh, social circle is one of the most amazing inventions um, throughout the whole history of humanity. Um and so um books have been all around me um since since I was little. Uh, books have been all around my kids books are all over my house piles of books are everywhere I have one of those piles there's a Japanese word for it of uh, books on your nightstand that you vaguely regret buying but then not reading and feel slightly guilty about um, now if, if, if are there single books I think that's an almost impossible question to answer unless you're about to invite me on Desert Island Discs or something like that where you, where you think of your sort of um, volumes Um whew. I think I read, I still read quite a lot of fiction. Uh, not not much, a little bit of science fiction, but a, 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 a lot of fiction. For example, I've just finished reading this morning um, a David Mitchell book. Uh, David Mitchell, a contemporary author, um, just got a new uh, book out that I'm going to read on my holidays called Utopia Avenue. But um, wr- writes wonderfully, and in this case, uh, it's a, a fiction about um, um, a Dutch. A Dutchman in a trading outpost in Japan um, in the nineteenth century, which sounds very unpromising uh, as a title, it was a very rich story of uh, unconsummated love, uh, political intrigue, and uh, sort of eighteenth-nineteenth-century uh, seafaring. Um, Fantastic book. Uh, I I think the point is less um, I recommend that book to you. You may find it terribly boring. You may find it absolutely fantastic, though I do recommend Aaron Mitchell. I think he's a great author. Um, I I, I think the point is uh, fiction for me allows me to um, go outside my daily life, um, go outside um, the the job and the work I do, um, and escape into a different world. And so I've always admired um, authors who can create those kind of environments and those kind of worlds for you to inhabit almost out of nothing, just sitting on a chair, you can you can be transported away.
0: If someone's interested in your kind of cognitive neuroscience type work and they want to read one book, which would be a kind of introduction to that field or just broaden their mind, what would you recommend looking into?
1: I'd I'd recommend not reading the books. Actually, I'd go straight to the journals. So, so I think that yes, you can go to Amazon. There are any number of good introductory books on um, consciousness or on cognitive neuroscience. Good, good textbooks. Um, but I think. A better way to do it is to learn how to navigate the literature through PubMed and publicly available resources like that. Now, again, you've got to really have access to a subscription or a way of getting hold of those PDFs. But in a way, following your interest, starting with a review article from, you know, one of the major journals, a Trends Journal or a Nature Journal or something like that, that, that you're just interested in. You think, oh, that's really interesting. Um, and then following that chain through the references that you probably did as an undergraduate, um, out into oh I'll have a look at that one oh that looks interesting oh that looks interesting, and I still do a lot of that myself. Um, I spot a lot on Twitter from other things, and I'm a dean of life sciences, so I get a, a, a lot of stuff. So, you know, I will find myself reading about bird migration, you know, and 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 the energetics of bird migration. You think wow that's really interesting, um, and just allowing your um, imagination and interest to wander a bit more freely than saying, and now I'm going to read a textbook on X, um, I I think is a better way to stimulate your interest. So, you know, if you're interested in AI and technology, stick it into Google. Make sure you go to Google Scholar or something like that that's actually indexing scholarly work that's been peer-reviewed. Off you go. Loads of preprints, loads of articles, loads of stuff down there that you can just have a look. And don't spend too much time on each. It's not an exercise in learning. It's an exercise in saying, this is really interesting, so I'm going to read it. Or this looks really interesting, but unfortunately, as soon as I've read the first sentence, it's very boring. So I'm just going to chuck it away and go on to the next one. Because there's lots and lots of literature out there. There's lots and lots of published articles. And there's lots and lots of stuff um, to find. Of course, uh, nothing beats a good bookshop. So you know, I, I guess rather than read a book, I'd say um, get on a train um, and go to your nearest large bookshop, large academic bookshop, and just wander around the sections that, that interest you, um, say, on cognitive neuroscience or neuroscience, and pull random books off the shelves um have a look at those books and see what interests you of course you're not going to be able to do that in your local waterstones if it doesn't have a neuroscience section it'll be popular science and lots of popular books so make sure it's not that's why i say get on a train you might have to you know take a little trip to your nearest um large university bookshop but that's a rewarding thing as well um the joy of just browsing in a bookshop and picking up something that interests you it's, it's a habit i actually got into many years ago Um, when I used to go see my grandparents in Cardiff and every time we went to see them every year, well we saw them more than once a year, but once a year, we'd go to a bookshop. um, I'm not sure if it's still there uh, and the rule was we were allowed to buy one book, any book, any book at all. So my, my, my sort of I wandered freely for a period in my teenage years. I was obsessed with uh, armored fighting vehicles and um, these kind of encyclopedic books of um, Soviet tanks and uh, NATO tanks and things like this, which must have horrified my poor old grandparents. But they always, no questions asked, bought a book, whether it was a cheap book or an expensive book, one book um, was what I got from every visit to my grandparents. Um, and that, that love of books and reading and knowledge, I think, was, was a fantastic thing that they helped impart with my parents to me, uh, that has stayed with me to this day.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.